This morning we're continuing through Acts, and if you have a Bible or a a Bible on your phone or however you want to do that, uh, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 17. We're going to pick up about halfway through that chapter. And the title of the message this morning is In Mission. We've been talking about mission. What does it mean to be in mission with an unknown God? Unknown God. How do we do that? I know in at least American uh, culture or subculture, there's been kind of a revival of superheroes in the past decade. Right? We've got these Marvel movies, DC movies, all of these, these films that have come out. There's been a renewed interest in these uh, various superhero characters. And one of the features of many of those plot lines or narratives is the hidden identity. Right? Many superheroes... They go and do these incredible things in the world. They, they are forces for immense good. But all the while, a simple mask or a cape or something obscures their true identity from the world around them, right? They remain essentially unknown. Probably one of the, the best or most common examples of this is Superman, right? Superman is Clark Kent, and, and the two are, are interchangeable. They're the same person, but somehow no one in Metropolis seems to be able to figure this out, right? Jerry Seinfeld, early in his stand-up career, uh, had a bit about this, and he said, you know, he, he couldn't understand how a simple pair of glasses could be such a dynamite disguise, right? The, the same guy, same face, same everything, but no one can put two and two together. Now that's uh, maybe, you know, funny to us, how, how Superman could do all these incredible things in the world around him in public and then, then be unknown as a, as a human being or a person. But I would say in, in a similar way, we may underestimate uh, just how unknown the presence or the person of God is in our world. We may assume that that is clear to see or to know or to recognize. But I would suggest that in many ways, the, the character of God, what it means to know him and be known by him, are often unknown or misunderstood or misrepresented in our world for all sorts of different reasons. Some of that is, is who we are and what we're doing in the church. Some of that is, is are things happening uh, in the world around us, beyond our control. But if that's the case, if who God is uh, in our world, in our time, despite whatever legacy Christianity has had uh, in this place, if there are deep and important ways in which uh, the person of God is unknown, then how is it that we are to be in mission with him? How is it we are to be representatives of that God if he is unknown in this space? That's a, a challenge, I think, facing us today in our current uh, context. But it's also a challenge that faces this church in the book of Acts. And we see uh, all of these, these missionary journeys that are undertaken, right? The, the kind of second, maybe half or second two-thirds of Acts 
are about the gospel going out of Jerusalem, out of the immediate context where, where in some way, shape, or form God was known, and out into Gentile communities. Uh, Pete shared with us from Acts 15 last week. And after uh, things were settled there in the Jerusalem council, Paul and his companions go back to Antioch and they prepare again to go out on another series of journeys to, to take this gospel forth. But again, they go primarily to places where this gospel is unknown. Paul this time sets out with Silas. Uh, Barnabas decides to go back to Cyprus where they were before. Uh, and Barnabas takes John Mark, Paul takes Silas, and they head westward from Antioch. They go uh, back to Galatia, which we read about, uh, I think, in Acts 14, to these new churches Paul had planted. They, they spend some time in those cities encouraging uh, those, those new church communities. And then they continue to move further west, and they actually reach the Aegean Sea. And Paul has this incredible vision in a dream to go, right? A man from Macedonia compelling them to come. So, so Paul and Silas sail across the Aegean. They head into Macedonia and later into Greece to cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And in, in each of those places, again, Paul is proclaiming a message. Paul is proclaiming a God that is essentially unknown, unheard of. And as he speaks about this God, he says this. He says, this God is now making himself known. There is a revelation of this God's person, and it's through a human being named Jesus, a real human individual who lived in Palestine, who was crucified and was raised from death. That's the gospel of an unknown God in these places. Unfortunately, that, that message is also kind of revolutionary. It's controversial. And in most situations, it quickly earns Paul uh, a ticket for his departure from those places. In each case, he's forced to leave. And in Berea, he leaves uh, under some rather violent circumstances. Uh, and so he flees 100 miles south down the, the Macedonian and Greek coastline to the city of Athens. And that's where we're going to pick up uh, Paul's journey today. We're actually going to take two weeks to look at the time Paul spends in Athens, and we're going we're to break that into two parts. Next week, we're going to look specifically at the, the message or the gospel presentation that Paul gives there in Athens. That's the, the end of chapter 17. But before we get to what he actually says about the God he knows and worships, this week, I want us to see how it is that Paul arrives in Athens. I want us to think about how Paul relates to that place, the posture he takes, the kind of relationships he develops. Right, what does Paul do to, to sort of cultivate a life in that space? And that'll take us up to verse 23 today. I'm going to offer three points this morning about what it means to be in mission with an unknown God, and then I want to finish with a challenge, something for you to do in the week ahead. And my hope is that in looking at how Paul lives in Athens, 
we might also then be instructed. We might have something to take away for ourselves as we live in a world where in many ways the God we worship is unknown. Let me pray for us as we open to Acts 17. Lord Jesus, I pray um, that we would be a people, firstly, who spend time, who are patient and humble enough to invite you to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we need to know you. We need to see our blind spots. We need to see the idols that we make of you so that we might know who you are in Jesus Christ. We might know the goodness and the glory of of the gospel in all of its dimensions. And Lord, from that place of knowing you, may you then empower us to be image bearers, to embody you to those that we love, to those that surround us. Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. This is Acts. We're again in chapter 17, picking up in verse 16. So again, Paul and his companions have been making their way down the Macedonian and Greek coastline. Paul had to exit Berea quite quickly for his safety. And so he actually goes to Athens alone, and he's there waiting for some time for uh, his other companions to catch up with him. So he has this, this time on his hands in the city of Athens. Verse 16. Start with just the first two verses. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that it was a city full of idols. So, He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by by day with those who happened to be there. I want to stop for a second and think about the, the place and the people Paul is stepping into here. I think it's always good to try to, to as faithfully but imaginatively reconstruct the sort of environments we encounter in the scriptures. So as Paul arrives in Athens, he would be stepping into a city that was sort of the nexus. It was the hub of intellectual culture in the Western world, in the the Near Eastern world, for the better part of 500 years, right? Athens has been a a crucial and, and critical city, especially in the world of ideas, Uh, The great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says, in a modern idiom, we might describe it like a great university city, right? Athens is like our Cambridge mass, where the Harvards and MITs are, right? Athens is like an Oxford, England. It's a a city that runs on ideas and and innovation and and speculation, and it's, it's admired, it's venerated by the ancient world because of that, right? People come there, they're attracted to it. Athens really was, in many ways, a cosmopolitan city. It drew people from around the world. 
But verse 16 tells us that though I'm sure Paul studied many of these philosophers, Paul was certainly aware of the reputation and the prestige of Athens before he arrives. It's not the ideas that immediately strike Paul or that he takes notice of. Yes, it's a city filled with thought and intellect, but verse 16 says he notices that it was also a city filled with idols. And the phrase uh, Luke uses there in the Greek is one that might more adequately be translated, it was a city smothered or a city uh, sort of swamped in, a forest full of idols. Everywhere you looked, every corner, every sort of inch of the city, you could see objects of devotion and worship. And I think that's, that's interesting because as much as Athens was prided for its, its wisdom and its intellect. This also tells us that Athens was a city longing for transcendence, right? It's, it's an expression of its longing to connect with something that is eternal. And so people would comment, you know, if you, if you read the historians, you read the, the travel logs of, of Paul's day, People would comment on all the different idols and statues and temples you could see in Athens. It was actually part of the attraction of the city. People were hungry, right, to worship something. But, but in, the, in the sheer number or magnitude of things to worship, that also tells us that perhaps what they were hoping to connect with was also elusive, Right, as, as idol piled up on idol, as to temple was built next to temple. Right, there, there's a longing there, but perhaps it's not being met in a deep and satisfying way. And so this is what Paul sees in Athens. He sees it's a city of many idols. And so that's my first point. To be in mission with an unknown God means we need to know, we need to see what it is that people are worshiping. We have to have eyes to see that. We need to be observers, as Paul is here. I said a minute ago that maybe Athens is sort of like some of the communities we're familiar with in New England, right? This, too, is, is a place, it's a region known for its intellectual uh, communities, its universities, And even though New England has this reputation for being one of the most secular places, one of the most post-Christian places in the United States, I wonder if, if we looked around us, if we walked the streets of our cities, if, if we did that in the way that Paul did here, if we would also notice objects of, of longing, of worship, of devotion. Probably not idols in, in the sense that they were constructed in Athens, but I think if you, if you spend a few moments looking, you can see people searching for significance. Things that we hope would connect us with the eternal somehow. One of uh, the leading philosophers in the United States and Canada in the 20th century uh, was Charles Taylor. And he writes a lot about uh, secularism. He writes a lot about postmodernism. But he has this, this great phrase. He says that 
no matter how much we evacuate sort of the, the Christian or classical God or sense of God from, from our current situation, that postmodern and secular spaces are always haunted by God. They're haunted with this desire to connect, to worship something. They can't get rid of it. You see it in our films, you read it in our novels, you see it in the art and artifacts we produce. Think, to, think back a few months ago when you, you went regularly to public spaces and you saw like uh, bulletin boards with notices, right? For flyers, for, for concerts, or for workshops, or for classes, or for you know, all the things that happen in Chittenden County in a, in a normal age. And think about how many of those things that you see posted there are offering to connect us with something of significance, with, with a deeper sense of, of who we are as people, with a, with a sense of, of meaning and purpose. Right? What is it that those things point to? What longings do those represent? Here in verse 16, we're told Paul didn't merely notice these idols, but we're also told how he felt in response. Verse 16 says, Paul was greatly distressed. He was greatly troubled. He was greatly moved by this display of idolatry. The, the Greek word there uh, that, that says distressed is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament, Septuagint, for when God encountered idolatry. How was God moved? When God saw people pouring out their lives and their resources and their worship on things that are ultimately empty or, or not as promised, right? It distressed, it troubled, it, it even angered Yahweh. And so Paul himself was moved in the same way. But I want us to see how Paul directs that emotion and that distress because I think it's instructive for us too. As Paul is distressed at a city of idols, Paul doesn't say, well, see you later. I can't deal with that. I'm moving on to the next city, right? He doesn't leave Athens. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't set up outside the city. Nor does he enter into antagonistic or, 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 or polarizing relationships with the people of Athens. Verse 17 says his distress motivates him to go into the center of that city. And Paul sets up shop at the, the intersection of the city's cultural and commercial and cultic life. That's the second point I have for you this morning. If we're to be in mission with a God who is unknown in this place, then we have to find ways to embody Jesus in and amidst that, that sea of idols. We have, to, we have to show up and be present to embody Jesus in those spaces. And so it says in verse 17, Paul, on, on the Sabbath days, he goes and worships in the synagogue in Athens. On work days, he's in the agora. He's in the marketplace, probably uh, selling wares. Uh, he's a tent maker, we know, from later in Acts. So he's probably working, but he's also engaging in conversation and dialogue. He's forging new relationships with the people. 
And then it seems like with whatever time he has left over, he's haunting the streets of Athens, right? Trying to figure out what makes this city tick, right? What ideas and, and people are behind those ideas? Right? How do we show up and embody Jesus in spaces like this? I have a, a friend a uh, professor that I've um, gotten to know over the past few years. And he, before moving back to the U.S., he was in Oxford, England for several years. And during the time that he lived in Oxford, he had uh, the chance uh, on one occasion to have dinner with uh, Richard Dawkins. And if you know anything about Richard Dawkins, he is not someone who is particularly uh, spoken of particularly highly among Christian circles. And some of that may be his own doing, the way he, he communicates but my friend said as he had dinner with him that evening, his goal was not to, uh, to debate him uh, or, or to draw him out, but simply to try to notice who Rick, Richard Dawkins was as a human being, to hear his story, uh, to, to recognize what it is that he, as a, as a human being, cares about, to see him as a person made in the image of God, who is is longing and is needing uh, that connection of worship. I wonder what it would look like for us to do that kind of thing in this space. What would it look like for us to do the kind of dialoguing and surveying and appraising of our own culture that Paul models here for us? We probably can see some of the idols in our culture, in our city, in our world. I would suggest we're probably blinded to some of the idols that we continue to worship within the church or or in our own lives. We might even be troubled or concerned, like Paul is here, by the presence of these things. But are we willing to go the next step like Paul is in verse 17? to move toward our neighbors, to set up shop in the marketplaces where they live and have commerce and are, are, are trying to work out a life for themselves? Right? Are we attempting to understand the longings behind all the things that give rise to these idols? Right? And, and if we aren't willing to build those kinds of bridges and do that kind of difficult work, then my guess is our God will remain an unknown God in this place. So Paul, again, he sees the idols, he understands them or seeks to understand what they represent. He embodies Jesus in the spaces that they inhabit and the people inhabit. And then it says after several weeks, maybe a few months in Athens, Paul is drawn into a debate with two of the leading intellectual communities in the city the Epicureans and Stoics. Look at verses 18 through 21. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? (laughs) Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. 
and we would like to know what they mean. And then Luke inserts an editorial comment here in 21, sort of tongue-in-cheek maybe. All the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> what stands out to me, though, in these few verses is the kind of curiosity that Paul provokes through his life, through his message, through his way of being. So much so that the people of Athens are, are moved to better understand or to ask Paul to elaborate further on this God, this foreign God he keeps talking about. And so they, they bring Paul to the Areopagus, which was sort of the, the chief council. It was like the governing body of Athens. And it was a place where new ideas were, were debated and, and heard and, and sometimes censored. But they, they seek, in verse 20, they, they bring Paul to the Areopagus and they say, Paul, you are bringing strange ideas to our ears. And we want to know what those ideas mean. What would it take for our community, for our culture, to have that kind of curiosity about our message? More often than not, if, if I'm honest, I think our community probably has a pretty good idea of what they think we have to tell them, what we are going to tell them about Jesus or about God. And they are not all that interested in our answers. Part of that may be things in their own life and, and things that are, are causing resistance, but part of that may be a perception that we are just offering Answers to questions they're not asking. But I'm sure our world has questions. And I wonder if instead what it might look like for us to back up, as Paul, I think, has done here in Athens, and to hear and to listen to the questions our world is asking. Right? What is it that our world wants answers to? What is it that our world is troubled by? What is it that our world needs a connection with something beyond themselves to understand? That's my third point this morning. Those who are in mission with an unknown God need to listen to the questions people are asking. Because I think that provides us a space later to speak. And we'll see that here in the second half of this, this time in Athens. Right, Paul has spent time in conversation. Paul has spent time in the marketplace. Paul has spent time studying the idea and ideas of the Athenians. And so when, when he provokes their curiosity, partly by what he says, but also partly by hearing the questions they're asking, when this opportunity is afforded him in, in verse 22 and 23, he's ready. Right? He's ready to share who Jesus is with them and why he matters, how Jesus is relevant to the questions they're asking. Look at verses 22 and 23 in closing this morning. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And he might be making a, a sincere point, maybe a, a little bit of a, a a joke here. 
Right, he says, you're very religious, for as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And so this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Imagine Paul again on one of those walks around Athens. And he comes across what is a a concrete, what is a a visual representation of, of a question being asked by the Athenian people. Right here is a statue or an altar with the inscription either to an unknown god or to an unknown or to to unknown gods. And and we find in in the Greco-Roman world numerous examples of inscriptions similar to this. There's this longing, right, to worship even things they can't identify or give description to. And the irony is not lost on Paul. He sees an opportunity. Because right here on the streets of Athens is an altar to a God no one even has a name for. And yet the living God, who Paul says is seeking to make his name known, remains a mystery. So there's a space to speak into. Verse 23 Paul says, this unknown God is the God I want to proclaim to you now. And I think it's really significant that Paul locates that starting point for a conversation. Paul locates the starting point for evangelism with an example from their world rather than his own. Right? He begins where they are, what matters to them. And I think what he's doing here is what Tim Keller would call sound contextualization. Paul's not simply telling people what they want to hear. He's not changing the gospel in any way, but rather, Tim Keller says, he's giving people the Bible's answers to questions people in their particular time and in their particular place are asking. Right? He's putting the gospel in conversation with real life. So I've given you three points. This is my challenge. This is my application for you this week. If we are in fact living in a place and in a time where our God is unknown in many ways, then what are the the altars? What are the places of of worship and devotion that, that our neighbors and friends and family members are at? And how could we meet them there? How could we seek to understand what desires, what questions, what longings they have? And as we we meet them there, as we embody Jesus to them in those spaces and in those questions and in those dilemmas, eventually they may ask, well, what are these strange ideas you have (laughs) about Jesus? And perhaps... God could open up a space for us to say, let me share with you the unknown God who desires to be known. Let me pray for us that we might do that faithfully.
Jesus, we have no knowledge apart from the knowledge you have revealed and given us. And Lord, we confess we know you imperfectly. We know in part one day we will know in full. We see in part one day we will fully see you and be seen. Lord, we want to be a people in mission, not to just shout answers that no one is interested in hearing, but to faithfully articulate a God who was willing to incarnate himself, was willing to suffer and die for the people he loves, and who is raised in power and offers to raise us into new life. But we want to make that gospel known. And we want to live it ourselves. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.